welcome to the AK-47 podcast. That's 47 selections from the works of Alexandra Kolontai. My name is Kristen Godsey, and I have a special guest with me here today, Angelina Eimansberger, who is a PhD student in comparative literature at the University of Pennsylvania and who has recently been reading Kolontai a lot. So welcome. Thank you. So I thought that we could just spend a little time talking about maybe how Kolontai has been instructive for you. We've both just finished a class that I was teaching and Angelina was taking, but also um, helping me with, called Sex and Socialism, where some of the texts that we read in class were uh, Make Way for Winged Eros, and the theses on uh, communism and the family, a thesis in the sphere of marital relations. So some of the texts that I've read here on the podcast, we've discussed in class and discussed with students. And so I thought it would be really fun to kind of get your feedback on the relevance of Kolontai for young people in 2019. Sounds good to me. Okay. Go for it. Well, I, one thing I've been thinking about is how Kalantai writes stories, and she writes all her theory and her essays and her speeches, but twice she's really a politician. She's the Commissar of Social Welfare in 1919, not for long, but she makes a lot of difference, and then she becomes a diplomat and represents her country in Mexico and Norway and in Sweden, and she makes a really big difference there too. And so it's really not just that she changes how women live, but she changes how she lives through her own changes. And that's wild to me. So unusual that she would not just theorize about the state, but she is the state. Right. Because both as the person who makes laws and the person who's a ambassador, you are the state in like a very profound way, like with your body. And I've been thinking about how that changes what she theorizes because it gives her a different kind of authority, right? Right. That she doesn't just think about it, but she's enacting it. Yeah, and I mean, and at that particular moment in time, right, we're talking here about like 1922, 23, she's, it's really rare to have a woman in that high level uh, position. I think, you know, I believe that she was certainly the first minister in the Soviet Union. Yes, she says that in her autobiography. Right. Um, she's the only and the first. Yeah, the only and the first. And, you know, she's becomes, you know, they. I think, you know, they've done some diplomatic history. So she's the third woman ambassador in the world in the history of diplomacy. But the there were some. There were two others apparently before her. She says she is the first in world history, but she might just not. Yeah, have Yeah, I think she research. just didn't know. Yeah, because I, I actually I was really curious about this because she does claim that she's the first, and people often attribute that to her. But there's like a some obscure text called the History of Women in Diplomacy, and I also double checked with a Russian historian on this, and she's the third technically. I think the other one was Hungarian. There was one woman who was Hungarian. There might have been a Swiss woman. But anyway, certainly... So third is still very early. Yeah, third is very, very early. And the other thing about her, as you said, is it's not just that she was the figurehead, right? She was actively crafting policies based on her own theories. And that's, I mean, that's a really rare opportunity for men to get, Yes. <laughs> I mean, you know, maybe with the exception of, of Lenin, I mean, most theorists of politics or theorists of the economy rarely become politicians. So for her to, to not only be a woman, but also be a theorist of gender and family and communism, and then to actually be given the power to enact her policies, I think is really rare. I think it relates to how she's very aware of being of an older generation. 
because I think for her the way it goes is that she makes the theory and then the policies she makes is for the next generation, in particular the next generation of women but also of all the workers. So I think for her and for many Marxists it's really a lot about sort of the future. Like she even says this could only have happened in a country of the future like the Soviet Union. So I think for her it's because she's preparing many generations that both of those things can have space. And then the other thing, like in the short story that we just read about like 1970, Exactly, right? <laughs> where she is the old grandmother who remembers the previous times of right. hunger and money. And money. <laughs> right. And, you know, in some ways, she's a woman out of her time, it feels to me. You know, the more I read her and the more I engage with her texts. I mean, she was already pretty old when the revolution started. And she was really old when the Soviet Union was involved in World War II. Yeah. She was really old then. And so that's, I think, also important because that's the Soviet Union she's writing about. The, yes. like, 1918 to 1930s. Right. Not the more, like, the last decades. Right, that exactly. That I think felt to her, like, the end in many ways, of the things she tried to do. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit more about sort of maybe how you're using Kalantai or how you're thinking about Kalantai maybe in your own work? So right now I'm thinking about her as an example of the Soviet Union as a state that enfranchises women as women. So not as a state that lets women be citizens by making them as equal to men as possible, but by stretching what they think of as a citizen. For example, that a citizen can be a mother, but then also that all the citizens are workers and so the women are workers. So in The New Woman, Kalantai goes through a lot of fiction that has a new style of hair in. Yes. And basically her, like, the nutshell of her argument is that these stories and these authors are different because instead of focusing on the romantic plots that were used for women herons, they write about women that are writers and that have a purpose, and the love stories come around that. And interestingly, a lot of these herons, she cites Schnitzel and other male authors. She says women authors haven't caught on to this That's yet. That's so interesting. Which is kind of counterintuitive to all my other work because I usually only study women's writers so to me that's fascinating that she studies male writers to find a new woman in literature but like Ibsen right is is somebody that she talks yes, about yes exactly right? yeah and that I mean those 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 plays or were really or you know they were really profound at the time I think and I sort of wonder if people would have been able to accept a heroine like, you know, what is her name? Hedda Gabler, right? Right. Um, from a woman writer. Very, like, very possibly they wouldn't have. Or at the very least, if someone like Ibsen writes a play like that, it has a much more open mind receiving it. Exactly. Right. And so, you know, but it is fascinating that women writers, I mean, but then then, then, then there's like George Sand, right? Right. Which is an interesting case. But that's much more about sexual liberation and promiscuity. Which is for Colin Tai important, but only if it's secondary to your work. Right. So I think while she admires George Sand, her stories still aren't enough about women with purpose. Yeah. They had good because the women have a different relationship to romance, but they don't have work at the center. And right. she doesn't mean work as in a job. She means work as in you're contributing to the collective and you're making yourself useful. And to her, that even settles her own heartbreak. Like in her yes. autobiography, she says, 
a few times, but it was okay. I was so busy, and I went back to, you know, brokering peace with Finland or, like, setting up a trade deal with Finland or whatever she was doing at the time. Yeah. That it was okay that, that her relationship ended. Right. And she makes this difference of women being seen as a personality versus a source of love. And so to her, it's like, if you are a personality, the love is just extra. But if you're not, then a divorce or a breakup really is the end because it's your definition. And, you know, I think it's so interesting because she does have this hierarchy in much of her writing where, like, your sort of work, your purpose, your contributions to the collective are always first. And then there are your relationships with your friends and your comrades and your colleagues, which are sort of second. And then third, in your spare time, <laughs> right, you should have the, you should attend to these sort of romantic relationships. And she feels, at least in my reading, that too many, for too many women, that is reversed, right? She does feel that. And of course, she feels that because of capitalism. But interestingly, in The New Woman, part of her argument is that because capitalism becomes so brutal, that's how the new woman comes about because a breadwinner model just isn't sustainable. And so women do start work just to make money, but that's an independence that can be a sort of counterintuitive segue into real independence right. because sort of the shop girls we might think of in early 20th century countries, they suddenly start out and they become personalities because they had to make money. So something that she's sort of theoretically opposed to, the capitalist structure of the economy, yeah. becomes an intermittent source of liberation just because it forces you to put something in the center of your life that's not just love and romance. And that was really interesting to me reading yeah. The New Woman. Something I didn't expect to find in it, but it did make sense. Like I'm thinking of, for example, The Rules of Civility, the M.R. Towles novel that a few years ago was so popular and in mm -hmm. all the bestseller lists. That's about a woman who works because she has to in like 1920s US mm -hmm. and she has a friend, her best friend and it's exactly Colin Ty's hierarchy. The most important thing is that she needs to make her money, then her friend and her roommate and then the love stories. The love stories. And people yeah. love that novel. Well, I mean, it, I you know, again, and I sort of wonder if that is if that isn't like Colin Ty's projection of how men hierarchize things in their lives. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's absolutely that like Isabel de Palencia that you quoted in an earlier episode says about Colin Ty that she's inferior to some men, superior to other men, and just like as if she's already a man right. <laughs> competing with other men because she has that hierarchy. Like for example, when she talks about how in Stockholm she was the ambassador, she says, "Well, Colin Ty was both the." ambassador but also the hostess and she went back and forth between the male role of being the like head of the mission but also the female role of welcoming people and it gave her so much power that she had both of these access points because she could talk to the wives and learn things on the side but that she also had the power to negotiate with the men and the full weight of the soviet union and the authority invested in her so it's really pretty pretty interesting it's almost you know she's a she's like a vision of female power that is still very female very even female. though she's in a male role she never abdicates her femininity in any way right and in fact there are pictures of her right when she's presenting her credentials to the Swedish king with her furs and her jewels and she has the you know very fashionable dresses and and actually that ceremony in Norway, Isabel de Palencia says, was created for Alexandra because no other woman diplomat had ever been presented to the king. So <laughs> It was in Norway, that's right, yeah. So she had to, like, 
just like make it up as she went because there wasn't a protocol. <laughs> right, there wasn't a follow. protocol for a woman so right, she presenting just her credentials. She apparently wore a somewhat plain black dress when she went it, just speculating that that would probably be acceptable <laughs> because she couldn't wear the suit that right. male diplomats wear. Right, right. Or she wouldn't. I mean, she probably could have, but I think she wouldn't have wanted no, to wear a suit. She wouldn't have wanted to, yeah. That would have undermined the whole point because that the Soviets not had trying sent a woman. To compete. Right? She's no. doing something very different. She's doing something very, very different. So I'm really curious how she would feel about something like Reese Witherspoon's like film production company, Hello Sunshine, mm-hmm. which like is based entirely on the fact that if women produce TV shows and movies, it's a different type of story that gets told. But of course they make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So it's a very capitalist enterprise. But the shows they produce is like by women for women. So I think Colin Ty would have something to say about how that's may how that's both the right thing and the wrong thing at the same time. Yeah. Because just now they brought out the morning show with Reese Witherspoon mm-hmm. and Jennifer Aniston. And it's a TV show that basically works through what Me Too means. Mm. And it's a very clever show with some shortcomings. But it's I think it's a project that Kalantai would have supported. But Witherspoon is only able to do it because she founded a company. Right. That's something to puzzle over. And you know, and then the other the other question I think is, you know, there is a history of of a long history of women's writer writing romance novels, catering to precisely this idea that at the center of all women's lives, ro- love and romance should be the most important things, and that work and and friendship and comradeship are like completely secondary. So, I mean, it's also women who do a lot of the reinscription of that idea. That's right? very true. Yeah. And Witherspoon's early movies were exactly like that, but the shows she's making now, like Big Little Lies and The Morning Show, yeah, they are about the friendships right. and the things they do. Maybe right. not exactly about work, but The Morning Show really is about the work and how Jennifer Aniston, as a woman who's not young anymore, can hold on to power in the aftermath of a scandal. I mean, it, yeah, I think there's there's so many different ways that we can go back and think about like the new woman, right? right. Does does the new woman have to be a product of capital? You know, that would be a standard Marxist reading in some ways that you capitalism sort of creates the conditions ultimately for its own overthrow, right? The seeds of the contradictions in the capitalist model are there, exactly. but it has they have to run their course, and so maybe women need to go through the exploitation of capitalism and experience that as workers and as you know capitalist subjects, economic subjects of that particular relationship of the means of production and the means of, of, of um, reproduction as well in the home. But then through that sort of crucible of, of capitalism or late capitalism in our case, women sort of arrive into this new consciousness. It's an interesting question. I think, you know, I think feminists might disagree, right? They would say, no, it's like all fighting the patriarchy and focusing on the home and rather than, than finding liberation through the workplace, and, and there's a good critique of why you don't find liberation through the workplace because it can be very exploitative. And, and if everything hinges on you getting fired, then emancipation in the workplace is very conditional. Very conditional. Because the kind of work Kalanta has in mind, the writing and the speech, speeches, no one can fire yeah. her. Right. It's more like if you have a blog or if you have a podcast, yeah. you might have to fight for audience, but no one can stop you. But mm. if you're emancipated because of your specific job title, yeah, that can be taken away from you. Exactly. If you step out of line. Absolutely. So this has been really interesting. Final thoughts, words? 
I think my only final thought maybe is that Colin Tai sometimes reads so prescient that it's important to keep in mind just how old some of her writing is so you don't get caught up in contradictions to yeah. keep in mind when she's writing it. And really the other thing I'm going to keep thinking about is just how aware she is of generation as a feature of feminism. I think that's sometimes understudied and something very worthwhile thinking about, both in terms of friendships that can cross over generations, but also in terms of work being structured, not about the present moment alone, but about different generations doing different type of work. Exactly. And I mean, and the fact that she calls herself a red grandmother, right? It's in so that story, beautiful. it's so beautiful. She, I like, I wish you were my red grandmother, you know? <laughs> Who wouldn't? Yeah. Who wouldn't like yeah. that? Having her tell stories. Exactly. Having her tell stories of like the days when there was hunger and capitalism and money. Anyway, thank you so much for being a guest. Thank you. I, uh, I'm really hoping that the sound quality on this is okay. This has been the AK47 podcast. My name is Kristen Godsey. My guest today was Angelina Eimansberger. She was actually on the show before on May 11th, 2019, if you want to go back and listen to our first interview. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you are all enjoying the soon-to-be holiday season, and keep up the good fight. Oh, sweet, oh, sweet.